You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. We recognise these lands were never ceded and a treaty was never signed. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Eidman Jeffrey. Today we're talking about energy, how we view it, how we talk about it and how we organise it, the pitfalls and problems that we face as we slowly turn to a clean energy transition. This comes in the footsteps of the inaugural First Nations Clean Energy Strategy Roundtable in the Pilbara. This comes in the footsteps of the inaugural First Nations Clean Energy Strategy Roundtable hosted in the Pilbara last week. The roundtable was part of a new government strategy announced last year that aims to ensure First Nations people have a say in energy policies and programs in the transition to net zero in Australia. It aims to be co-designed with First Nation communities and organisations and allow for more equitable uh, access to energy as well as building energy capacity. So far, the federal government has dedicated $5.5 million to the strategy. But how are these round talks going and what do we need to be looking at when we're looking at energy reform? Well, to answer those questions, we'll be chatting to Ruby Heard from the First Nations Clean Energy Network, a non-for-profit that works in this space about what the first roundtable was like and where our conversations and innovations need to go. Ruby, you've just come from the inaugural First Nations Clean Energy Strategy Roundtable in the Pilbara. Can you give us an idea of what the roundtable was like in terms of format and what it looked like on the day? Yeah, so um, we did it over two days and what it is is the, the federal government is developing the first First Nations clean energy strategy um, and so that's basically to help decide how Indigenous people should participate in the clean energy transition um, and, you know, straight from community members what, what, what they're expecting and what support that they need um, and that the government can provide. Um, and so, yeah, we held that over two days in Port Hedland um, and we had communities join us from uh, all over the Pilbara and also the Kimberley. Uh, we had about 33 representatives uh, from different um, Aboriginal organisations and PBCs. Um, and, yeah, it was, a, it was a great event of people really um, sharing, like, how, how impactful this transition could be on our people and that they are ready and excited to participate. Um, and they, you know, that they brought a lot of insight about this is what we need to be able to be set up to participate in a way that's, that's going to bring us benefits. Um, so yeah, it was a really good, powerful few days. Um, and, you know, we also heard a lot of people speaking from their heart, um, on the community side, letting us know how they'd been let down in the past by mining companies and that sort of thing, <clears throat> letting us know that they were concerned about how this transition could go the wrong way and that they could be left behind again. Um, and then also we had a, a lot of honesty on the side of the federal and state government participants where they were happy to talk about um, that they're, you know, very aware that things in the past have not gone the right way and that they want to move forward differently in the future as well. When we talk about just transition to net zero futures, it's such a huge system change. 
what's the scope of conversation for the roundtables? Like, how do you start that discussion where you're going to look at uh, energy history, where we are currently, and then where we go next? Well, right now, it's very clear to see that we are not living in an equitable energy landscape. Um, so things like our remote communities are on prepayment meters, which means that, you know, it's like your old prepaid phone where you have to continuously buy credit. You don't get a bill, you buy credit. And when your credit runs out, uh, your power is disconnected. And so this is um, one thing that we keep coming back to as this is, you know, a, a representation of, of how inequitable this is because if you live in a town or a city, you're literally the last thing they ever want to do is disconnect your power. Um, so you will go through payment plans and, you know, have all of these different support services available to you to ensure that you never lose your, your access to power. Um, but it's kind of the first thing that they go to in Indigenous communities. Um, so that's, that's one, one of the, the issues that, that we deal with. Um, or also on those, those power cards in some of the communities that I work with in, in the Kimberley, they actually have to buy physical power cards. So they have to go to their one store in town and purchase one of these cards and then key it into their meter, which is outside of their house. Um, and if that shop is shut on Sunday or it, usually they shut maybe midday Saturday, um, they've got no access to get a power card. So they have to go and ask friends and family and neighbors if they've got spare power cards. Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, something that we would never ask people in our cities and towns to deal with. It's just, it would be an outrageous request, right? Um, so yeah, so that, that, that's one of the, the real inequities. Um, so what we're looking for is just to bring, bring that back in line. Energy is an essential service. We should all have the same level of access. So that's the first ask is equitable access to energy. And that means affordable, reliable, and clean power, no matter where you live in this country. Um, the second thing would be Indigenous participation in the design, construction, and operations of energy projects. Um, free, prior, and informed consent for projects on Indigenous lands. And this one really, for me, um, has been the huge failure of the, the mining companies, right? So <clears throat> none of these things uh, were very well ticked off um, previously with negotiations with Indigenous people. And what we see in this space now is that uh, the the part that says informed is a very at risk because Indigenous communities are quite used to negotiating with mining companies now and they they know what kind of benefits they might ask for. They, they know the deal, right? But now they have renewable energy companies coming to them and they're unsure. And in many cases, they don't understand a lot about renewable energy, what the project's going to look like, what impact it's going to have on the land, um, and, and yeah, and what are, what are those kind of benefits that they might be able to get out of it? Um, so, and then going further than that, we also want to see our communities having the ability to say no to projects that aren't wanted and not have that overturned by the government. And of course, that never happened with mining projects. If a, if a community uh, was opposed to the project, um, they basically found a way to to get an okay from the government to go ahead. Um, so we, we don't want to see that for renewable energy projects. And uh, all of these tips and more are in the First Nations Clean Energy Network Best Practice Principles for Renewable Energy Projects on Indigenous Lands. So that's a document that can be downloaded 
on the firstnationscleanenergy.org.au website. Um, if you join as a, a member, then you'll have access to to those guides that we're bringing out. And also you mentioned that the government, the state government uh, and the federal government had been rather honest or rather open to discussions at the roundtable, which is wonderful to hear in a co-design process. <laughs> but I was wondering what's sort of the some of the takeaway points that they were making um, from the roundtable that you, you thought was interesting? Yeah, so we we listened over the, the two days and, and basically uh, came up with what we think is six categories of uh, things that Indigenous, um, Indigenous PPCs, Indigenous land councils need uh, to be able to participate in um, in this transition. So those were uh, energy security, which we, we talked about, the idea of um, reliable, affordable power for all of our people, um, more education and information, and that comes back to that idea of um, actually getting informed consent. Uh, our people don't currently feel like they have enough information to be able to um, come to these negotiations and, and be informed. Um, opportunity and co-benefits, um, so, yeah, just the one thing that came up there was longer negotiation periods. So a lot of these projects, they're already in motion and they've already got their timelines of what they're trying to hit and they've not factored in the sometimes extensive negotiation period that they would need to go through with the traditional owners. Um, so we, we want things like that to be um, more, more flexible um, to allow for what Indigenous people need. Um, responsibility. So that was things like, um, someone brought up, you know, waste at the end of life of projects. Um, so, you know, we'd like to see that developers are actually responsible for, um, cleaning up projects at the, the end of life. Uh, traditional owner capacity and resourcing. Um, so our PBCs are, so that's our prescribed body corporates who are members of a traditional owner group who are, um, representing that group and their native, native title claim. Um, so they are severely understaffed and, you know, sometimes not paid. Um, so they're stretched really, really thin and they get a lot of requests from all sorts of people trying to talk to them. Um, so they need they need better funding and, um, and resources and access to experts that they can talk to about these kinds of things, which are, you know, well above their head. There's lots of um, legal legal issues and technical issues that they're um, not over. Um, and the last one there was was rights, and th that included that free prior and informed consent and um, a, a seat at the table and a strong voice in these negotiations. You're listening to Earth Matters with Edwin Jeffrey. We're chatting today to Ruby Heard from the First Nations Energy Network. The network is a collection of First Nations people, community organisations, land councils, union, academics, industry groups and more, all interested in building renewable and energy capacity in Australia that prioritises First Nations people, centred around the following values of self-determination, community-driven solutions, consent and collaboration. Another um, problem that I, I know you guys have raised around energy in Australia is the regulation and 
trying to navigate this sort of complex regulatory environment to create your own energy security. Can you tell us a little bit about that challenge and then what a just transition looks like to renewables or to net zero? One of the, the big issues in, that I've seen in my projects, so I'm an electrical engineer and I work on feasibility studies for uh, Indigenous communities, um, and one of the issues that, that I see there is this um, standardised tariff. So uh, in Western Australia, Northern Territory and Queensland, we have these um, standardised tariff regulations that everybody pays the exact same tariff no matter where you live and the the concept of that is great um, but the difficulty comes where we try to put in a renewable energy project and now the economics are warped because of this um, idea that it doesn't matter how much horizon power for example spends on trying to generate that power for that community they will be subsidized under this tariff equalization scheme um, and so it's really hard for us to to demonstrate to them that uh, putting in renewable energy is actually beneficial because the, the business case kind of falls over because of this legacy scheme. Um, so I think that's something that really needs a bit of work to, to figure out how we can get around that and bring out the true economics and the true benefits of having renewable energy into these communities because right now that's one thing that's really preventing that. Um so the another thing would be um, restrictions on who can sell power to who. Uh, so it could be great to see some Indigenous-owned retailers and, and generators, but, you know, there's a lot of restrictions about who can generate and who can sell power um, and difficulty in our, our PBCs getting around that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, coming down to the smallest scale, we've got Indigenous households uh, that on these prepayment meters, if their neighbour runs out of power, they plug in an extension lead and they throw it out their window for their neighbour to maybe connect their fridge or their air conditioner. Um, and so this is commonplace, common practice. They'll leave lights on in the, on their porch in case the neighbour needs to use a little bit of light in their yard, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's just ingrained in our culture, this idea of sharing resources, and it always has been, and it's, you know, one of the foundations of our society. Um, and our current electricity system doesn't allow for that. You can have your own distributed energy resource but you can't you currently can't just share your excess with your neighbor you have to sell your excess to the utility and then they sell it to your neighbor you know and that's that's not uh really in the spirit of how indigenous communities would like to operate um so I, i'd love to see some change in regulation um, and some some appropriate technologies brought in to allow that kind of sharing between households that's an amazing point you bring out because it sort of brings me to my next question, which is about how we view energy in Australia. So I know we view it through this very narrow paradigm where it's this fossil fuel centric. It's very focused on electricity capacity, obviously, because that's how most of us interact every day with energy. It's either that or fuel. Um, and it's very extractive. It's very extractive and it can be very exploitive. Like if we just look at, for example, how we pull energy out of the ground, you know, and the systems we use um, and, and and the damage it has on nature. I was just wondering if you could chat a little bit about 
in this space, you know, how does energy exist outside of this narrow perception? Can we change the way we view energy and use that in changing our approach and in a just transition to net zero? Yeah, this is a topic that's very interesting to me. And I do a lot of following um, of, you know, the ancient energy type things where they, you know, they're wondering if the pyramids are actually um, were originally sources of energy and, and that sort of thing. Um, I'm very interested in, in ideas that there are some more natural ways that we can create energy. And I mean, you, to your question, um, you know, what is energy on a, a larger larger lens in energy is in everything and energy is in our human body we run on electrical signals and i think people like to forget that but um it's it's very much like ingrained in everything i was just reading an article actually about um electro like electro shocking your uh crops and that they have shown a lot of benefits to the growth of crops by applying some, yeah, applying some like very selective electrical currents to, uh, to the water actually. And then, and then, um, putting that water on the plants. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's infinite and we do look at it in a very, very narrow, small way. Um, there's so many aspects of the energy crisis that we just choose not to focus on. Um, so, you know, just, to start with, we don't even know how much diesel our Indigenous communities are using and we don't talk about it. At any of these uh, forums, conferences that I go to, everybody likes to talk about, you know, what percentage of renewable energy are we at? And time and time again, they're only talking about the national electricity market. They're not even talking about the whole of Australia. They're just they're talking about um, the East Coast and, uh, and they're completely ignoring the fact that our communities, some of them are run... 100% on diesel generators for their energy systems. So that's one thing that, that needs changing. We need to start talking about that. Um, at the roundtable, one of the uh, federal government people asked me about, oh, well, how much more power are you going to need when, uh, when electric vehicles come to these communities? And the idea to me was almost laughable because, you know, we can't, I don't have an electric vehicle. None of my neighbours have an electric vehicle. Um, so, so I said, you know, well, as soon as I see a federal government strategy that actually shows how we're going to start to get electric vehicles into our towns and cities, then I will start to worry about how much more power we might need for these communities. But right now it's just it's so far out of their paradigm. It's just, um, yeah, it's just a wild thing to think about um you know the the range alone is a, a big factor um so we won't go too deep into that but yeah that that's another thing we, we're not talking about you know uh that transition because it, to me it's just so much further than uh people in our cities seem to think it is um there's the use of firewood that's not captured as well in any of these statistics our communities uh or even our regional places i grew up with a, a wood heater um and a wood stove actually we we until I was probably 10 or 12, we didn't even have, we didn't even have an electric oven. We had a, an oven that ran on firewood. Um, you know, and this is, this is something that doesn't seem to be, be captured in, in any of these statistics, but our indigenous communities in particular are using firewood as an alternative to electricity. So, um, I went and interviewed 30, members of communities in the Kimberley about their electricity use. And when I said, how might you reduce your electricity use? A lot of them said, well, we could go and sleep outside or we could go and cook outside. And so for them, that's um, the alternative to using electricity. 
is to start a fire and use that for light, heat and cooking. Um, so that's something that's not very captured. And then uh, you and I had a little chat about the idea of some alternative generation. We already talk about solar and wind as being the alternative, um, but let's get even more alternative than that. Um, and I mentioned that I had built a microbial fuel cell at university, which um, uses organic matter and I use just wastewater and it uses that and bacteria consuming that organic matter to create electricity. Um, and, you know, where, where are those ideas? Where's, where's the money being poured into that? We're, we're very obsessed with the idea that solar is the, is it, you know, that's, that's what's going to save us and we just need to make those more efficient. Um, but, you know, I, I just can't help thinking that there are more ideas out there which lean a little bit closer to nature that would solve a lot of the problems that we are now starting to see with renewables. And on that topic of sort of renewables and techno solutions, <laughs> it's like um, a point you raised with me yesterday was the fact that solar panels create a huge amount of waste and we don't really capture that in our energy estimates or our energy discussions. Yeah, and our communities are very aware of waste because it doesn't go far enough away from them. Like if you go out to some of these remote communities, the dump is very close to them. You know, in some cases they can see it. Um, you know, it, they, they are, it's a part of their everyday. They're, they're very aware of waste. And so they are bringing this up as a question. What are you going to do with this? And we're talking not just about regular old waste. We're talking about things that um, potentially have toxic chemicals inside them, these batteries, um, which is, is, you know, we don't want to see that leaching into our water tables and our soil um so they're they're very aware of that more so i'd say than than people in cities and towns who you if you get solar you if you get your solar replaced um that installer is just going to take it away and, and you're never going to have to think about it again but you know for these communities it's the potential for these solar panels to not be taken very far away um, and just to be dumped on their lands uh, and it actually came up as well um that the, the power cards I mentioned before, the physical power cards, they use them once and then they just become rubbish. And, you know, it just seems so ridiculous that that is still the solution that you've, you've written some numbers on a tiny plastic card. Um, and it's just a one use thing and now it's rubbish. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very aware of that because they're, they're seeing that every day. Um, so yeah, to, to address that kind of stuff, uh, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with recycling, but I'm, Right now, we don't know how to do it. Everyone's just talking about how hard it is. And um, it's it's a lot cheaper to install new than it is to try and recycle these things at the moment. Um, and when is that going to change? Are we putting enough money and research into trying to change that? Um, and, you know, if we can't do that, well, what are the alternatives that we can start to create that are more circular economy? Um yeah, a few other problems with renewables that we, we come across is the, the land clearing. Um, I read an article about an Indigenous community that was happy to see a wind farm go in, but the level of land clearing was not made clear to them and their hearts just broke when they saw how much destruction happened to the trees and the landscape to, to get these wind turbines in. Um, so, again, coming back to that uh, informed consent, like you need to make sure they understand what they're getting themselves into. You need to, to make sure that you show the true level of the impact on the country or, or you're going to end up with very, very heartbroken traditional owners. 
Um, so that's yeah, that's the one issue that we that we um, have to navigate. And uh, I think we need a way more focus on energy efficiency. Still, nobody really wants to talk about energy efficiency, and there's massive opportunities there for us to reduce the size of these renewables projects if we just put the money in the right place in the first place. Are there any examples of small community or individual energy transformation that you have seen that really, you know, is like, right, that's that's our model case. That's what we need to be looking at because it's guided off the six the principles you've been speaking about and it's it's working for its community. I wish I had a really good example um, of something in Australia, but it, you know we're we're just we're just doing this now. We're just really putting a lot of attention into it now. I mean, you can always talk about the Bushlight Program and how that was definitely transformative for communities across the country. Um, so, for people who don't know that, it was a federal government funded program which ran from I think two thousand and two to two thousand and thirteen. They installed over one hundred and fifty remote power systems, solar, battery storage, and backup diesel generators. And um, they had a real focus on quality, quality um, local components. So they sourced Australian wherever they could. Um, and they focused on including the community in the design and the decision-making process so that afterwards the community really felt like it was theirs. And because they felt like it was their system, they looked after it. And because they looked after it, Today, there are systems that are 15 plus years old that are in the harshest environments in Australia and they're still going. And so it's just a testament to that that idea of quality and doing things the right way and, you know, a, a quality installation and how that can make a difference. And, yeah, there's communities that that has allowed them to continue living on country because there was no... Um, utility there for them. They uh, they needed to have their own power system. Um, so that was a fantastic program. And unfortunately, the federal government defunded it. And um, now a lot of those systems are coming to the end of their life. And the communities are wondering, you know, what's what's next for them. Wrapping out today's show, I'm reminded of the words by Cato Murr four years ago in the Activism in the Margins conference in Melbourne. He said Australia is a settler state built on piracy and that our resources in this country are extractive and exploitive in their method. Putting today's episode together, I think along these lines, the way we talk about energy is still so colonial, it minimises nature for man-made force and innovation. Today on the show, we were lucky enough to hear from Ruby Heard about how we need to push back against this, work on informed consent, work on more natural solutions, and expand our understanding of energy so that we can move easier to a just transition to net zero. You can check out Ruby Heard and the First Nations Clean Energy Network at firstnationscleanenergy.org.au where the group will be documenting the roundtables and the discussions to come out of them. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. 
That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.